and welcome to the Belt and Road podcast, where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis on China's growing presence in the developing world. I'm your host, Eric Mikesterino, coming to you again today from Durham, North Carolina. You know, we are so excited about the continued expansion of our community. If you found this podcast, but haven't followed us on Twitter or Facebook yet, you should do it now. We list the latest news, research, and analysis on the Belt and Road at our handle, at Belt and Road Pod. So today, the main question which so many scholars, analysts, and pundits have been trying to answer about the Belt and Road Initiative is its drivers and purposes. And in very incredibly vague terms, there seems to be a continuum between geopolitical strategic grand strategy placed together from Beijing for either regional, if not global, dominance or influence, to the other end of that spectrum, a more decentralized, chaotic competition of competing domestic interests and economic and political factions within China trying to extend their own pet project internationally. Of course, you know everyone recognizes that uh, both of these elements of drivers exist, but how should we as a broader public try to understand this important story of the 21st century that is the Belt and Road Initiative? So I have one viewpoint today. I'm really excited to have on the show Dr. Lee Jones. Dr. Lee Jones is a reader in international politics in the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London and is a research associate at the Asia Research Center at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia. He specializes in the study of political economy, social conflict, state transformation, and security in the global south, particularly in East Asia. I brought him on to discuss his recently published article co-authored by Zheng Jinghan that was in Third World Quarterly entitled Understanding China's Belt and Road Initiative, Beyond Grand Strategy to a State Transformation Analysis. Dr. Lee Jones, welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. So straight from your title, you challenge the notion of the Belt and Road Initiative being a grand strategy. Uh, to set our discussion today, how would you answer that $1 million question of what is the Belt and Road Initiative? Only one million. I thought it was one trillion. Um, yeah, that, that's true. Eight trillion, I've yeah, heard from some places. Well, yeah. indeed. So I would say that, uh, give a long-winded but a hopefully precise answer, which is that I think the Belt and Road Initiative is an extraordinarily loose, baggy policy envelope, which is a set of ideas and slogans that a whole host of poorly coordinated political and economic actors can harness their own interests and agendas to. The most important ones for me are the state policy banks and state-owned enterprises and associated provincial governments. But it includes really dozens of government ministries, party agencies, and even you know, quote-unquote civil society groups. So you know, even Buddhist monks are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And for me as a political economist, I think the core of the Belt and Road is it's an injunction for these actors to go out again to externalize China's massive um, surplus industrial capacity and its capital reserves. That's certainly a, a viewpoint from within one end of the spectrum. And so within your article, you you know, you know argue that it's unlikely that the Belt and Road Initiative is this grand strategy because of the domestic state transformations that have happened within China. That would make it really difficult to achieve, even if it was the purpose to be a grand strategy to begin with. And you describe three of these transformations, fragmentation, decentralization, and internationalization. Can you comment on each of these, starting with fragmentation? Sure. I mean, the context here is this bigger project I'm doing with um, Shahar Hamiri of University of Queensland, which is funded by the Australian Research Council. Um, and it's it's interested in how the transformation of the Chinese party state is shaping its external relations. So in a lot of the literature on China and a lot of the popular reporting, there's this idea of China as this monolithic entity where it's all very top down and hierarchical 
command and control type system. And that just ignores a massive amount of literature in Chinese studies on the changing nature of the Chinese party state. And so what we're trying to do is to create a theoretical framework for understanding how this transformation works, how policymaking works within the within the Chinese system. So we've got these three kind of vectors of state transformation. One is fragmentation. The party state has become fragmented through this piecemeal reform process and marketization. It's dispersed authority and control across lots of different party state agencies. They often now have many overlapping jurisdictions. So if you think, if you take maritime policy, for example, you've got between 10 and 20 different agencies involved, about a dozen in energy policy and over 40 in, in narcotics, just to take a few examples. So there's a massive challenge of coordination there. The second vector is decentralization. And by that, we mean um, the emergence of substantial policy and financial autonomy for local government, particularly provincial government, and the constant struggles for control, effective control, over different tiers of the party state. And that raises a lot of problem about central control over local government. So the third vector of state transformation is internationalization. By this, we mean where party state apparatuses that were initially created purely for domestic purposes acquire some international function. So examples would include state-owned enterprises going out, becoming major global corporations that have quite a big foreign policy impact. Um, the joining of international regulatory regimes by groups like the People's Bank of China or say the Ministry of Public Security heading up a new international organisation to uh, tackle piracy and banditry on the, the Mekong River, for example. And that raises the challenge of effective coordination and oversight over these different actors as they operate overseas. You also describe in length within your article of how the CCP has always utilized platitudes and slogans, catchphrases and generalities in order to offer, quote unquote, atmospheric guidance for others to implement. Can you describe how this works domestically? I published a piece in the Journal of Global Security Studies last year when I'm trying to understand how does foreign policy formation and implementation work in this disaggregated party state. And I suggest what we see now is the emergence of a Chinese-style regulatory state. Now, in regulatory state, this, the centre has withdrawn from so-called positive intervention, direct intervention to achieve very precisely defined goals, corralling the entire state in a very top-down way to roll out particular policy agendas. In, in regulatory states, the centre is involved in setting instead broad guidelines or regulations that steer other actors public, private actors in a more disaggregated way. And that can take a lot of different forms. Could be laws, various decisions, opinions, regulations, and so on from lots of different um, national level agencies. But also the vague, the vague slogans that you mentioned. So exhortations to go out, opening up and reform, harmonious world, China dream, and so on. These very kind of vague statements that are, I think, in a sense, bags or policy envelopes. These are sort of broad statements that are meant to guide the overall tone of policy. But they're incredibly vague and amorphous. They don't have any concrete meaning. You know, if you've ever seen anybody try to nail down what Xi Jinping thought means, for example, you get a, a clear idea of the how vague and empty these slogans are. So it's left to other actors, the fragmented, decentralised and internationalised actors I mentioned, to work out what that actually means in practice. And I suggest that there are there are three different mechanisms. One is that actors can influence these broad frameworks themselves. So often what look like these top level 
policy pronouncements actually bubble up from below. It's about, it's about other actors lobbying to have their interests and agendas reflected in national policy. They can interpret what these policies actually mean. They develop them into concrete policy platforms and behaviours and implementation. And they can even ignore them, acting against central instructions. They can go rogue or they can just ignore central directives. Now, that's not the most common response, although it is widely documented, because in the Chinese-style regulatory state, there's still steering capacities that can be very um, powerful at times. So there are various coordinating mechanisms, like leading small groups, for example, try to coordinate all these different actors. There's lots of discretionary control over money, um, in particular, that a lot of lower-level actors will need to pursue their ends. And most importantly, the, the the Communist Party's own powers of appointment, appraisal and discipline over personnel. And what I think you see inside the, the, the party state today is a big tug of war between the different actors at the national level and between national and subnational levels as well within that overall structure. That sets really great groundwork as to what is happening within the domestic transformation of the political economy within China. You know, how does that help us understand, or how would you argue that helps us understand the Belt and Road Initiative? All right, so let's think about the Belt and Road through these this threefold framework of influencing, interpreting, and ignoring. So begin with influencing. Where did the Belt and Road Initiative come from? It didn't just jump fully formed out of the brilliant mind of Xi Jinping. Um, the ideas and the interests and the agendas behind the Belt and Road have been around for two or three decades. And it's mostly about provincial governments and state-owned enterprises lobbying for funding and policy support to enable their external expansion or even just their survival. So we look in the paper at the formation of the key Belt and Road policy documents. And it's clear that what's happened here is provinces have been asked to upload their pre-existing schemes, whether domestic infrastructure projects or transnational ones. And so you get provinces being told, quote unquote, by the central government to do certain things that they've been wanting to do for a long time themselves anyway. So you take Yunnan province, for example, they're told to develop the Mekong subregion. That's something that they've been doing since 1992. Um, and the Bangladesh, China, India, Myanmar corridor, which the, um, Yunnan province invented itself in the late 1990s. And we showed that there was a really mad scramble among the provinces to be able to, to do this. They fought like mad to be let into policy planning sessions. And in, in public, they had these very unseemly battles over who should be regarded as the starting point of the Maritime Silk Road and who should be the starting point of the ancient Silk Road. And then battled over the starting point of various commodity chains like tea and porcelain and so on. And they really mobilised their local media and, and scholars to to do this. So you could see over time the number of provinces that are involved widened. It almost doubled from 14 to 27. Um, and some less competitive ones like Jiangsu province, for example, just pushed out altogether, despite the fact that she had said that Jiangsu was a key interaction point for the uh, Silk Road Economic Belt and the Maritime Silk Road. And over time, you get this shift from one belt, one road into what you find in the planning documents, which is three land routes, two maritime routes and six corridors. And the number of agencies that are involved just absolutely explodes. If you look at the list of cooperation priorities in the documents, it, it spans literally every conceivable field of the Chinese party state. And it really broadened the Belt and Road from an initiative that was initially quite narrowly focused at 
the peripheral states around China to the entire world by 2015. And, and even in 2017, they banned the production of Belt and Road maps altogether. So you can trace the emergence of the Belt and Road in its key policy documents through this influencing process from inside. And then you've got the process of interpreting. So even when the policy platforms are worked out, particularly by the National Development and Reform Commission, with input from the Ministries of Commerce and Foreign Affairs, the guidelines are still incredibly vague. Um, and it is worth going to look and see at their visions and action documents, just how vague it is. And that has, then has to be further interpreted and implemented by these disaggregated actors. And there's really no coordination here. There's just a leading small group of the State Council for the Belt and Road, but it's just under Rice Premier, and there's no real evidence that that leading small group is doing very much. The NDRC seems more important, but it's quite reactive. And again, it's not very active. So it's a lot of pretty autonomous actions by various fragmented actors like ministries and policy banks. The bottom line is if you can mobilise funding for it, and it's a lot easier to mobilise funding if you slap the Belt and Road slogan on it, then you can basically pursue your own interest under the banner of the Belt and Road. And the key actors making the running here are state-owned enterprises, provinces and policy banks. They're able to mobilise quite a lot of economic resources and political clout to secure financing for their projects, some of which they've been pursuing for quite a long time. But there's also some lower profile, but quite important, I think, not really much studied stuff happening around, um, for example, internationalising Chinese regulatory standards. Essentially, what it means is what is being built in the name of Belt and Road actually depends on the agency of these disaggregated party state actors and how they're interacting with political and economic interests in, in would-be recipient states. And then thirdly, there's already evidence of ignoring, you know, there's, the reality is that some of these actors have very little regard to even the vague guidelines that are being set out in Belt and Road policy documents or the broader um, governance systems within the Chinese party state. And we've got quite a lot of data on this now over the course of the last five years. There's been some interesting statistical analysis about where Belt and Road projects have actually ended up where it's where money is actually being spent and there is no correlation between actual spending and even these vague guidelines around various land routes corridors and so on I mean, essentially commercial actors are doing what is what is in their interest to do chinese regulators are trying to tighten things up a bit but there's always that struggle between chinese regulators and, and state-owned enterprises in particular and even if you've been left out of the plans, even if you're formally excluded, that can be ignored as well. So we look at in the paper at Jiangsu province, which was very annoyed at being left out and criticised the decision very harshly. But it just published its own Belt and Road plans unchanged um, after the decision. And the state council itself ranks it as among the most top 10 most active provinces in the Belt and Road. So you can see how those three dynamics are actually shaping what the Belt and Road looks like in practice. It's very much about the agency of these disaggregated party state actors. It's very little to do with top-down strategic direction. Yeah, I think you've made an incredibly solid case here. But just to play devil's advocate, you know, Xi Jinping has consolidated more power than any other Chinese leader since at least Deng, if some people say Mao. But And along with Xi's more dominant power within China, there's been further consolidation towards Beijing with the leading, the small leading groups of the, within the Belt and Road Initiative, as you said, uh, the formation of China International Development Cooperation Agency, the new MEE, the Ministry of Environmental and Ecology, 
consolidated into the China Chinese Banking Insurance Regulatory Agency. I know that some of these are newer, but is there a, a case to be made that that there has been more centralization and more of a grand strategy that's been taking place? And lots of these things were kind of vestitudes of the go global, the pre-2013 uh, Belt and Road change. And now we're going to see a, a more centralized ability and grand strategy formation within the Belt and Road. It's a very good question. And uh, I get asked this question constantly. So particularly when you speak to international relations scholars, they really don't like the idea that China isn't this highly centralized Westphalian entity. Um, but sometimes they might admit that, well, it used to be true, but it's not true anymore because of the rise of Xi Jinping. And what I often say to people, kind of tongue in cheek, is the idea that Xi Jinping is this kind of Bond villain sitting there stroking a white cat uh, and cackling to himself uh, as he's able to pull all the strings in the in the Chinese party state and control everything, I think is really fanciful. And the fact that we can show that this that this is how the Belt and Road Initiative is working, I think, is a very powerful um, support for this analysis because this is Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy. He's associated with this more strongly than any other initiative, domestically or internationally. But this is how the Belt and Road actually works in practice. So I think there's a striking parallel to the Great Western Development Campaign, or this, the Go West policy launched in 1999 by Jiang Zemin. This was an idea about developing the Western provinces by encouraging them to make transboundary infrastructure and develop trade and investment relations with neighboring countries. Sounds very familiar, right? This is a forerunner of the Belt and Road. And there's good solid scholarship to show that that worked by setting out very vague slogans and soft policy at the national level that then was interpreted, influenced and ignored by disaggregated party state actors. The fact that there's really no change in the way that Go West was governed and Belt and Road is governed shows remarkable continuity in the, in the form of Chinese governance. The idea that she has, has single-handedly reversed 30 years of state transformation and concentrated all power in his hands is, is fanciful. I think it's it's true that he has tried to centralise power, but I think the way to think about that is that he's engaging in this tug of war that I mentioned earlier on. He's using the mechanisms that exist within the Chinese-style regulatory state, which are used by all kinds of different Chinese leaders over time. But he's pulling more sharply than his predecessors have. So he's trying to mobilise the various mechanisms to impose better discipline and so on. But that's playing the existing game. It's not changing the rules of that game. And the rise of leading small groups, as you mentioned, under his chairmanship, I think is a classic example. That's nothing new is the creation of these, these groups to try to coordinate all these different entities. The fact that you need these leading small groups shows that there's still this problem of fragmentation. And the fact that he has to chair so many of them, or is supposed to chair so many of them, shows you how little he trusts subordinates to do it instead. And now there are more than 80 leading small groups in the Chinese party state. So David Lampton has a nice article on the the new LSG for national security. And he says the, the leading small groups themselves also need coordination. It's just not feasible to think that one person can personally control in any meaningful detail the, the policy outputs that happen beneath all those leading small groups. Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence to show that 
things have not fundamentally changed. And I have a, a, a funny example I, I like to use um, is Xi Jinping's toilet revolution. Shall I? Please. Want, want yeah, I, I love, yeah, I love the toilet revolution. So, it's, it's a great example. I love this, this, this example. So in April 2015, Xi Jinping calls for a toilet revolution. And what he means is that local government should clean up public bathrooms because they yes, stink. Very much enough. so, yes. Um, now, how did local governments respond to that? They leapt on it as an excuse to splurge loads of money on building new bathrooms. So they funneled loads of money to local construction companies that we know are very tightly controlled and uh, tightly linked to local elites and very important in local economies. And within 18 months, they'd spent three billion US dollars wow. on new bathroom facilities. And there's some lovely kind of profiles about these kind of gold plated taps and glittering marble toilet and things like this. So the state council had to say, whoa, 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 you know, <laughs> when we said toilet revolution, this is not what we had in mind. So that's a really kind of just a, a kind of silly example, but it's a lot of money, three billion dollars just splurged on on new loos. But there are lots of more serious examples. The difficulty that central government has in getting local governments to cut industrial capacity or to reduce pollution or to curtail shadow banking or to stop borrowing money and spending it on housing and infrastructure that is uh, there's already surplus capacity and the continued purges at quite high levels of the Chinese party state. So I think the idea that Xi Jinping has simply consolidated power, that that's a process that has happened. And now he's in control of everything and personally decides the output of the Chinese party state. I think it just doesn't correspond to reality. You know, lots of those who kind of take a more grand strategy approach to viewing the Belt and Road Initiative are also can be well entwined with the rise of a China threat or, 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 or China being China, a big entity being a, a threat to uh, international global governance or the spread of mm. uh corruption, authoritarian governments abroad, could still this decentralized process of expanding Belt and Road create similar effects, even if it wasn't a grand strategy? No, it's a good question. I mean, there's a couple of pieces that I've written, different pieces to the one that we've been discussing today. Um, one of them you were kind enough to recommend to your listeners, actually, on a, on a previous episode, um, China Challenges Global Governance and in International Affairs. And I've also just recently published something in the Food and Journal of the Humanities and Social Sciences asking, does China's Belt and Road Initiative challenge the liberal rules-based international order? These are very important questions. And I think it is, you can be right for the wrong reasons. Um, so the people that think that China is deliberately setting out to undermine the international order, I think are totally wrong. I don't think there's any evidence that that's the case at all, particularly in that um, Food and Journal piece i say look if you look at the policy documents it's very clear that chinese elites are not issuing any clarion call mm -hmm. to overthrow the existing order mm -hmm. or transform it in any way whatsoever does that mean that the belt and road initiative will not have disruptive effects? not at all but the disruptive effects emerge from this disaggregated activity within the transformed party state not from any strategic intention and i think that's absolutely crucial to understand because you can look at things like so-called debt trap, for example, the rise of unsustainable debt in Belt and Road countries. And you can look at that through a realist framework or realist blinkers, and you can read strategic int intentionality into that and say this was a, a long-term plot, you know, reflecting this Bond villain idea of 
Xi Jinping, that they deliberately ensnare people in these debt traps, knowing that things will go awry and then they'll be able to take advantage of the country later on. I don't think there's a shred of evidence to support that strategic understanding. This is very much driven by state-owned enterprises and banks and the very shonky regulatory system for approving um, projects and loans and so on within China and things going wrong, requiring bailouts from the Chinese party state that actually form in, in many respects, as one, uh, in one of my interviewees said to me, a debt trap for the Chinese banks and the Chinese enterprises rather than the government. So it's really important, I think, to understand how the Chinese party state actually operates and why these outcomes are being produced. Instead of always reading them through this geostrategic lens, yeah, it's much easier to claim that it's all about rising China and challenging the West and all the rest of it. But that leads you into a really hysterical response, I think, to what China's up to and can intensify the risk of conflict. So that's what this bigger project is about, is saying, let's understand China from the inside out and let's develop more reasonable and constructive ways of engaging with what Chinese actors are doing overseas to mitigate the negative impacts, not to exacerbate them by responding in this very geostrategic way. Incredibly fascinating. Lastly, you know, in your article, you know, you wrote about different different provincial and local interests that are involved within the Belt and Road and how sometimes these these interests can go against the broader Beijing's a, a foreign policy agendas. Can you give us an example of a time in which this has happened and how that's affect the uh, social political dynamics between China, the larger China, Beijing, and the host country because of uh, this disaggregated self-interest from either provincial state-owned enterprise or uh, provincial government and the like? You know, my argument is that what gets built under the Belt and Road is determined by, on the one hand, the economic interest coming out of China and from these different actors. On the other, the political and economic interests that are dominant in recipient countries, because you need them to sign on. China cannot impose projects and cannot impose loans on other countries, which doesn't want to anyway. So they actually play a big role in shaping what gets built. But what that means in practice is you can get these cozy deals struck between particular regimes and Chinese commercial actors. So there's mutual win-win on both sides from in, in these projects. But it, it can mean that there's no real oversight over these projects and very poor governance. Um, so projects can often be economically rational. Environmental and social safeguards are usually very poor because the rules governing China's outbound investment are very poor. And so unless recipient governments manage these projects really well and think them through properly and impose their own safeguards, you can get uh, white elephant projects, unsustainable debt, social costs like forced displacement and environmental degradation. And that can lead to many unforeseen outcomes that can degrade relations between countries at the diplomatic level, particularly if there's a change of regime in that country. So you get new people coming to power who had no role in designing this project in the first place and didn't get uh, the benefits from it. And other governments looking on can also be suspicious of what's going on with all the talk of debt traps and so on. And I think your second episode was a great episode on the Hamlin Tota port in Sri Lanka. If your listeners have not heard that one, they should go back and, and listen to it because it really exemplifies what I'm talking about here. So 
this was a, a project where you know, the Sri Lankan government wanted this port and they've been pushing for it for a long time and they got in a Chinese state and enterprise to help build it and they were prospecting around, sniffing around for business opportunities and the two sides came together. But it produced massive overcapacity. Um, it just, the port wasn't used at all. It became a white elephant with massive unsustainable debt. And so, you know, China, Chinese government had to come along and arrange a bailout, essentially, for the, for the Sri Lankan government. And that re resulted in the transfer of this, um, the port and some surrounding land to a different state and enterprise that now has to try and make some profit from this white elephant. And that, I think, has not really damaged relations too much between the two countries, but it has led to this in incredible um, rhetoric around debt trap. That, for example, played a big role in Myanmar deciding to downsize the deep water port project at Chok Pu. So it was initially going to be 10 berths, and now it's downsized to two. And there's been a lot of tussling around on the, the debt terms and the benefit sharing and so on as a result. So that has a knock-on impact. Or another example is, is Malaysia. They've suspended Belt and Road projects worth about $23 billion. Behind that was Chinese state-owned enterprises linked to different provinces prospecting for profitable deals in Malaysia. So you get different port building companies with different provinces behind them coming into Malaysia and partnering with different state-level governments to create projects. And you get two world-class ports being prospectively built on the Malaysian peninsula. There's no way that, they, that both of those are going to be economically viable. When the new Malaysian government came in in 2018, they looked at these deals and they found loads of kickbacks and the links to the um, embezzling of hundreds of millions of dollars from the state development fund by the previous prime minister and kickbacks from the Chinese state-owned enterprises. And of course, the new government says, you know, we don't want any part of this. Uh, we're suspending all these projects, we're cancelling the ones that we can. And the new Malaysian prime minister on a visit to Beijing, you know, rants about um, new colonialism. So particularly when, you know, a new regime comes in and looks at the books, basically, and says, what are we doing here? Um, that can cause a, a serious breakdown in relations between China and that country. And I think a very similar thing happened with the, with the change of government in Myanmar in 2015 as well. Just absolutely fascinating. You know, I loved your article. and I thank you so much for, or your articles actually. And um, I thank you so much for coming onto the show today and stick around for recommendations. We've been having a conversation with Dr. Lee Jones. Dr. Lee Jones is a reader in international politics at the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary in the University of London and is a research associate at the Asia Research Center at, of Murdoch University in Perth, Australia. Today, we talked about a recently published article he co-authored with Zhang Jinghan that was published in Third World Quarterly entitled Understanding China's Belt and Road Initiative Beyond Grand Strategy to State Transformation Analysis. Well, on to recommendations. Uh, do you have something to recommend for our listeners today? I do. There's an article that was just published in the Journal of Contemporary China by Minya, and it is called Fragmentation and Mobilization, Domestic Politics of the Belt and Road in China. And it's a great companion piece to the article that we've been discussing today. It's a deep dive into some archival documents, some speeches and some records of actual projects uh, that really uh, supports the interpretation that I've been 
putting forward with the Belt and Road and makes a great contribution in its own right. It's, that's a really wonderful recommendation. It's funny because it's what I have. Oh, as a no, no, really? <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to yeah. give you a different recommendation? No, I, I usually have two. So I usually have one that deals with the Belt and Road, the one okay. more fun. So we'll double recommend uh, Minier's uh, new JCC article, Fragmentation and Mobilization, Domestic Politics of the Belt and Road in China. And uh, my second recommendation will be all the films that were snubbed by the Oscars, <laughs> including fir- including First Reformed, which is a must-see with Ethan Hawke's performance, uh, and um, and Hereditary, which is probably the scariest film uh, you'll ever see in your life, or at least it was for me, but it was done incredibly well. Um, so that recommendation will work for me. Okay, my recommendation sounds very geeky by comparison, right? <laughs> well, I, we we both had that recommendation, so we have a double I guess recommendation. My other recommendation for, uh, for... before I actually picked up this article, which I think I picked up from your Twitter, was um, Tom Miller's book China's Asian Dream, which I have caused yeah. to to cite quite a lot. I think it's a it's the best book I've read on the Belt and Road Initiative. I think it has its flaws, like all books, um, but I think he kind of gets how it works, and he and he. He looks at what's going on on the ground in various different Belt and Road countries, and that's really, I think, indispensable. Yeah, my, one of my main reasons in the research I try to highlight on this show, I try to get a very diverse amount of perspectives, but I really try to focus it on interactions mm-hmm. between China and a host country, or China within a specific sector, within a region, um, and to, because... Belt and Road is so nebulous and so large and has been taken so many different interests from domestically within China and abroad. It's, it's so difficult to even talk about and it, it really misses out on so much if you do it on a grand scale. So um, any, I love Tom Miller's book as well because it has, you need those anecdotal qualitative stories about what's happening on the ground. So great book. I would recommend that as well. So uh, thank you for your recommendations. And thank you again for coming on to the Belt and Road podcast. You've been listening to the Belt and Road podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And we're also on Twitter and Facebook, where we share the latest news, research, and analysis on the Belt and Road initiative at Belt and Road Pod. Until next time. <laughs>